factions. Last time we were talking about the Shield of Achilles and all that it means. As you recall, there are stars in the middle, there is an ocean at the edge, there is a city at war, there's a city at peace, there's a great harvest going on, there's a dance, there's a murder trial, there's a marriage happening. And so, what this piece of ekphrasis, which is a literary term meaning a description of art within literature, is attempting to do is describe the entirety of human existence and that which limits it. And so we took a look at it. We looked at these two or three images of it. We looked at the schematic of it. We then looked at this slide about it. And you don't need to write this down, but you should know this. So at the center of the shield are the heavens and stars. At its edge, the river ocean. Those are the edges of our experience, right? If we live on a continent, the ocean is that which limits our motion off of the, uh, the continent unless we have a ship. In fact, the discovery of ships was a very famous discovery mythologically portrayed in Greek mythology by the discovery or the creation of the Argo by Jason, the first of the Argonauts, who traveled with Peleus, father of Achilles, uh, Telamon, father of Aias the Greater, um, as well as Heracles for some short amount of time. They were the generation of heroes before this generation. And can you guess which god S first gave the idea for the creation of a ship to Jason? Very inventive goddess, yes? Athena, of course, the goddess of wisdom and of new thoughts. Yes, very good. And so this means that the shield contains all that exists within the cosmos. We are limited by the sky and the seas. Between these two extremes exist two cities, one at war, one at peace. These are extremes of human existence. Civil humans or social humans, you exist in a time of peace, or time of war, which is sort of why this time is sort of odd for us, because it's as if we do have selective military engagements throughout the world, but of course we do not feel as if we're at war. It seems to be a collective feeling when it's happening. Uh, I can barely remember it, but uh, a war that we recently uh, finished, not, not the one in the Middle East, not the one in the Balkans, um, but uh, the Cold War was sort of a different sort of war as well, where there was a constant threat of nuclear destruction but uh, soldiers were not constantly fighting against each other. So it was a very odd place for us to be historically. And we exist now in a very odd place to be, which is the now. So we never know what's going to happen next. And so the scenes of country life, we also see that. They explain how humans function. They plow, they sow, they plant seeds, they cultivate them, they harvest their fruits. That seems to be how you live your life. And this happens at a natural level, but also at a metaphorical level. Study, that's sowing the seeds of thought. Then you cultivate or groom your knowledge as you feed or water a plant, and then you reap the rewards of your efforts. So you eat the plant that you grow. It's almost like you eat yourself. And if you ever have had communion on a Sunday, you understand now what the idea of eating the wafer means, that you consume the fruits of your labor. And you're like, why is it a wafer then and not a fruit? And I say, because it's a grain, and grain is the exact same metaphor. You reap grain. You reap grain. I can explain that more later. So, in any case, let's see a reconciliation. We just saw this shield that has a war on it, a city at war, but also a city at peace. So it makes sense now, since we've been seeing so much war, that we might be able to see some instance of peace or some maturity come out of these individuals. And so, first and foremost, we have Thetis, Thetis at the beginning of Book 19, present armor to Achilles. And something very interesting about this presentation is that the armor, and especially the shield, so horrifying to the eye, so shining bright, 
that none of the other Myrmidons, Achilleus' men, can bear to stare at it. But Achilleus will drink it in. And as he stares at it, his eyes will fill with fire. If I open to book 19 very quickly and just take a look at this. My child, this is line eight or so, now though we grieve for him, we must let this man lie in the dead in the way he was first killed through God's designing, accept rather from me the glorious arms of Hephaestus, so splendid and such as no man has ever worn on his shoulders. The goddess spoke so and set down the armor on the ground before Achilles and all its elaboration clashed loudly. Trembling took hold of all the Myrmidons. None had the courage to look straight at it. They were afraid of it. Only Achilles looked. And as he looked, the anger came harder upon him, and his eyes glittered terribly under his lids like sun flare. He was glad, holding in his hands the shine of the shining gifts of Hephaestus. Something to say about Achilles, and I think I do have a slide about this a little bit later, is that as he progresses on towards Book 24, he is going to become less and less human and more and more like an impersonal force. What does that mean? A, he will be described with images of fire. We all live in California. We all were alive this weekend. What does fire do? Burn. It burns. Burn. It destroys everything in its path. What is Achilles going to try to do? Destroy, Destroy everything in its path, like an impersonal force. As if, but the thing is, what is it that a human has that fire pushed by the Santa Ana winds does not have that often keeps a human from destroying everything in its path. It's something that you may have first learned about in the movie Pinocchio. It was embodied by a cricket. A conscience, that's right. Humans can choose whether they let evil or good out from themselves. What apparently is Achilles' choice going to be now that his best friend has died and has been killed by Hector, and he is going to blame Hector 100% for this? Evil. Destruction. Yes. And so, an Achaean assembly is called. Achilles and Agamemnon will there publicly reconcile, and we'll talk about that a little more soon. We then see a very touching scene between Briseis, who has now been returned, to Achilles and, uh, and Achilles himself. And the touching scene, well, they both lament the death of whom? Patroclus. Of course, Patroclus. And something very sad that Briseis claims that Patroclus said to her at one point was that she should not be sad, even though Achilles had destroyed her city and killed her family, because Achilles would someday choose to marry her. Choose to marry her, though he already has a child by another woman in the Court of Lycomedes on Skyros. That was the claim that Patroclus made, which suggests that Patroclus was a what sort of person? A nice person or a mean person? Nice. A very nice person. So it's almost as if what he represented was the empathetic, the compassionate, the kind, the soft, the feminine portion of Achilles. It's as if he had the soft virtues, as it were. He was the sort of person that was likable, funny, caring, joyful. That is not the sort of person you will see Achilles to be now that Patroclus is gone. Does Achilles go arm for battle? And actually, before he does arm for battle, he does something that we know is always a mistake. So 
a big part of this class and the next class is talking about personal responsibility and taking responsibility. And in fact, when you take this class next year, you will find out that the difference for Dante between going to the inferno, hell, and going to the purgatorio, which is a place that leads to heaven, will be whether one takes responsibility for one's errors and mistakes in the world or whether one blames something else. The problem with blaming something else is what can you do about anything if something besides you is at fault? Nothing. Right. It's not a very useful way of going through life. And so we're going to see Achilles here. Let's open to this just because I think this is sort of a funny part uh, <laughs> where Achilles gets uh, chumped by a horse. Uh, <laughs> which I think is the best way to put it. So let's open to book 19, lines 392 to 424. Let's figure out which page exactly that is. If you find it first, you can just kind of yell it out and we will get there. I think it is page 424 into 425. Ah, yes. Yes, 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 yes. All right, Achilles has been arming himself. Uh, let's start at 387 or so. Next, he pulled out from its standing place the spear of his father, huge, heavy, thick, which no one else of all the Achaeans could handle. But Achilles alone knew how to wield it. The Pelion ash spear, which Chiron had brought to his father from high on Pelion to be death for fighters in battle. Automedon and Alchemos, in charge of the horses, yoked them and put the fair breast straps about them and forced bits home the bits home, between their jaws and pulled the reins back against the compacted chariot seat. And one, Automedon took up the shining whip, caught close in his hand and vaulted up the chariot while behind him, Achilles helmed for battle, took his stance shining in all his armor like the sun when he crosses above us. Wow, so he's shining. And cried in a terrible voice on the horses of his father. And less enough for the kind of smack and the shade he throws here. Xanthos, Balios, Bay and Dapple. Bay and Dapple are translations of Xanthos and Balios. If you know much about horses, a bay horse is, uh, I believe, a brownish horse, like a chestnut, and a dapple is a spotted horse. And in fact, that is what the name Xanthos and Balios means. Xanthos means blonde or bay or chestnut. Balios means spotted or dappled. And dappled is a fancy word for spotted. Famed sons of Podarge take care to bring in another way your charioteer back to the company of the Danans when we give over fighting. Not leave him to lie fallen there as you did Patroclus. Ooh. Achilles blames the fact that Patroclus's body was left out on the battlefield and stripped of its armor on the horses. Of all things he could blame, the horses. We just wrote an essay about the causes of Patroclus' death. We identified something like nine causes. Were any of them the horses? No. And so he's transferring the blame that he fe that who must feel onto the horses and projecting it onto them himself. He must feel the blame. And let's see how his horse Xanthos responds to him. So we get a talking horse moment here. Then from beneath the yoke, the gleam-footed horse answered him, Xanthos. And as he spoke, bowed his head. And you might understand that Achilles' immortal horses are, say, the immortal forces of spirit within man. Are the, are the, and, and something just interesting about that is that metaphors of controlling yourself often use horse imagery. We say you need to rein yourself in, right? 
or or and when we talk about punishing someone in order to curb them we talk about using a what on them a whip and in fact when you read the purgatorio there will be a metaphor of the whip and the bridle used when it comes to art and so the fact that Achilles is having a conversation with an immortal horse which you might imagine is the spirit or moral spirit which goes through all humans might indicate that he's having a conversation with himself might indicate that he does not understand that he is the cause of his own suffering yet. And so let's see what Azanthos, potentially a metaphor for his own spirit, has to say to him. We shall still keep you safe for this time, O hard Achilles, and yet the day of your death is near. But it is not we who are to blame, but a great God and powerful destiny. For it was not because we were slow, because we were careless, that the Trojans have taken the armor from the shoulders of Patroclus. But it was that high god, the child of lovely-haired Leto, who killed him among the champions and gave the glory to Hector. But for us, we too could run with the blasts of the west wind, who they say is the lightest of all things. Yet still for you there is destiny to be killed in force by a god and a mortal. Does anybody know who the god and the mortal are who will kill Achilles? Yes? Apollo and Paris. Very good. Very good. When he had spoken, so the Furies stopped the voice in him, but deeply disturbed, Achilles answers back and he says something. It doesn't matter. So, the horse gets to talk to him because Hera puts a voice in him for a moment. He says, you're talking a whole lot of smack to me, Achilles. A, I'm not at fault. B, you're going to die very soon. C, there's nothing you can do about it. And so, wow. Is that a very good conversation for Achilles? No, oh, and I think there's something to be said for when you try and blame something that is not the cause of a problem, you do not get much of a solution out of it. So let's keep moving. So, okay. Oh, 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 oh. Good, good. All right. When Thetis presents the arms to Achilles, and so just uh, further detail, no other Myrmidon can look at it as we talked about. They were afraid of it. But when Achilles looks upon it, he's filled with anger. His eyes glitter like sunburn. Thetis then says, she will keep the flies off of Patroclus while Achilles fights. He doesn't want to go out and fight because since his friend who has been brought back to his camp is dead, he's creepily keeping him uh, near him, and he needs Thetis, his mother, to keep him from decomposing because after someone dies, they no longer have the vital systems to keep them from stopping. Uh, the, they start to turn into meat that is not preserved. What happens to meat that is not preserved? It rots and smells and gets nasty. And Achilles wants these precious few moments still with his friend. He's so sad, filled with pathos. He does not want to leave his friend because he knows that he is going to rot and disappear. And so he wants to spend these final moments with him rather than going to fight. That said, he has to go and fight so that the Trojans can die and the Achaeans will not die. And so his mom, typically, says, I'll take care of this. Your friend will not rot while you're gone. And that helps Achilles actually choose to fight. So, like I said, Achilles will, come less and, will become less and less human. Besides just having fire imagery accompany him, something else he will refuse to do is eat. He will also refuse to rest. Eating, human thing? Yes. Sleeping, human thing? Yes. Using one's conscience, most of the time human thing? Yes, at the very least, does it let you know when you're not listening to it? Yes, of course. And then, even very much insanely, at one point, when he's fighting the son of a river in another river who injures him in the arm, spoiler alert, he will 
sort of go crazy and talk about how he has descended from Zeus. And so he's so much stronger than this guy is, than Zeus is, than a river. And he's going to be spouting this off in the middle of a river while fighting, while bleeding from his arm. And it's going to be a really scary scene. We're all going to be like, this guy seems deranged, demented, rabid. It's like, correct, correct. That is what he is. That's, in fact, why uh, the Joker in The Dark Knight, Christopher Nolan's second movie in the, dark, in the Batman Begins trilogy, that's why the Joker is compared to a forest fire. He, too, like Achilles, just cares for destruction without conscience. All right, very good. So the Achaeans assemble. This is a big moment, because where is it that Achilles said he would not return to all the way back in book one? Not battle, nor assembly. He's in an assembly. We're Achaeans. Are we happy or sad to see him? We are stoked out of our minds. Because if he comes to the assembly, that means he'll probably come to the what? The fight. Especially if he's already wearing his armor, which he is. He's super ready to fight, which will actually cause a small problem. And so Achilles speaks first. And he says, let our quarrel be a thing of the past. And I don't have a ton of time to read all of this to you, but he makes a very beautiful quote uh, uh, after this. He talks about how, how he was irrational because of his anger, that his anger became to him a thing sweeter than honey. And I want you to think about your own experiences in life. Has it ever been the case that you have held on to an emotion because you get used to feeling that emotion and you do not want to give it up? Maybe you've been sad about something for a long time, and you want to listen to the same sad song 30 times, even though your friends are trying to help you. Or you've been angry at somebody, and even when good things happen, you're like, no, I'm angry. Somebody's like, here, have this piece of cake. Stop being angry. And you're like, no, I don't want the cake today. And it's like, oh, you don't want the cake. <laughs> so Achilles says that because of the sweetness of anger, he could not overcome his attraction to it. He could not see clearly. And so, A, something you might notice is that's a good apology on the one hand because he is somewhat admitting fault, but B is not a perfect apology because who is responsible in his account? Anger for what he did or himself? Anger, even though who is responsible for restraining the anger within you so that you act right even when you are angry? You are, right. Well, Agamemnon... <laughs> Agamemnon pulls a very similar trick in his, in his uh, apology. And this comes in uh, book 19, line 75 to 143. He says, there was once a god, he tells us a story. So here's the story, Steve. There was once a goddess, the daughter of Zeus, named Delusion. And the thing about Delusion is that she was once used, of course, by Hera to injure or Stop the journey, of course, of Zeus's son, Heracles. We heard about a very similar story with sleep and her messing up his trajectory on the water. He was supposed to go to Kos, I think. He was sent all the way to Argos. Well, apparently once, this is very funny. This is very Hera. Hera knew that Heracles was going to be born on a very certain day. So she goes up the very next day. And she goes up to Zeus and she says, I need you to tell prophecy and make an agreement. Whichever man is born tomorrow, who is your son, will become king of Argos. And so Zeus is like, that's sort of a stupid agreement to make. I know who's going to be born. It's going to be Heracles. 
Yeah, sure. And so what does Hera do? Well, she goes down and stops the birth uh, of Heracles. Uh, there is a goddess of childbirth. There are two goddesses. One is named Eletheia, and one is called Hymen, uh, of course. And she stops them from, giving Herac from having Heracles be born. There is another man who is going to be a son of Zeus, but not as great as Heracles. His name is Eurystheus. She made him be born, I think, two months early. And yet he survived without deformity, mythological story. And so he is born on the day that Heracles was supposed to be born. And so he becomes the king Heracles was supposed to become. And something interesting I'll tell you is that later Hera will drive Heracles crazy so that he kills his own family, his children and his wife, very sadly, Megara. I forget what the name of his first children were, but don't worry, he had more. They were called the Heracleids, and they ravaged the countryside after, after his life. Um, Eurystheus actually becomes the king of Heracles and enslaves him to his 12 labors, eventually. And so there's a tremendous inversion there, a tremendous inversion. But the whole idea about this is that delusion messes with Zeus, so that Zeus makes this agreement so that his son who's supposed to be king over all people is actually more like a slave. This makes Zeus feel very happy or very wrath-filled. Wrath-filled. So he takes delusion from his head and he throws delusion down to earth. And now who is cursed to suffer uh, the, the pain of delusion for all time? Or uh, it just as a basic definition of delusion, delusion means to believe that which is false is real. So if you're walking around and you're like, I'm a prince. Everybody obey me. People will be like, that's a delusional person. That's a crazy person. In fact, often uh, times the reason that when you see homeless people walking around with, say, a cart and maybe some music from the 90s on a Walkman, which is a piece of technology you maybe don't even know exists anymore, the reason why you give them a wide berth is because they're probably what to you? Delusional. They might not know what's going on. And in fact, I can tell you when I go downtown to my home, every day and I drive by three to five hundred of them in a giant shanty town uh, and they don't obey the traffic laws they'll just walk across the street I give them a wide berth not because I think I'm crude or judgmental but because I do not know what they are going to do and that seems to be part of the problem with delusions if somebody doesn't recognize the same reality that you exist in do you know how they are going to act nope. and so that's the problem when Zeus throws delusion down from Olympus, where does delusion now live forever? Earth. Who lives on Earth? The humans. Who has to deal with being delusional then? We do. And a big question you might want to ask yourselves is, has Achilleus been delusional this whole time? Has he been seeing things in the wrong way? Has he not understood reality? Is that something that powerful emotion can do to you? And has Agamemnon on the other side also been delusional? And then you might want to think, are delusions the greatest enemies of A, leaders, and B, people? False beliefs. Well, that's an interesting question, and a very difficult question. We get a very long story about this here, indicating that Homer does want us to think about this. Yes, do you have a question? Yes, very good. Hephaestus being thrown from Olympus is what Lucifer being thrown from heaven in Milton's Paradise Lost is modeled off of. Yes. I think that's an excellent question. Is delusion being thrown down from Olympus 
similar to Lucifer being thrown down into hell. I would say that's that is a very strong connection. That is one of the great ideas about Lucifer, the great deceiver. And in fact, when you read Dante next year, the language of Lucifer will be the language of lies, the language of deceit, that which appears true but is not. And so, yes, I think that's a very, very, very strong connection, as if that which was once in heaven is thrown down on earth to curse those on earth. That's very, very strong mythological motif. Uh, you see that also in sort of Garden of Eden, Prometheus stories as well. Something from heaven comes down to earth, now all the people on earth suffer. And it's like, well, yeah, 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 there you go. It's like we accomplish something, we gain something, but we lose something else. Like we gain the capacity to think, but we lose the capacity not to have anxiety for the rest of our lives because we know we'll die. Oh, yeah, double-edged sword. And the sword is, of course, the symbol of your intellect, which is why Harry Potter at the end of the second uh, uh, book receives a sword from a hat. It's like he learns how to think. And that's what you do at a school. <laughs> uh, very good. Okay, so here's the story just very quickly, just to uh, lay it out for you. You do not need to write this. So, here, okay, in the past, Zeus swore that Elethea, goddess of childbirth, would bring forth a lord of all men from Zeus's blood, Heracles. Hera says that he will be a liar, makes him swear. Uh, uh, says, uh, no, Heracles will not. He goes to the wife, she goes to the wife of Senelus, who's seven months pregnant. Oh, I did get this right. Hera brings the premature birth about. She then stops the birth of Alcmene, that is the mother of Heracles. If you like extra credit, I would remember that. And Hera then reports that Eurystheus, son of Senelus, must be king as he was born on this specific day. Enraged, Zeus throws delusion to the earth, forever banished from Olympus, forever a curse to mortals. And this is what Agamemnon concludes his speech with, his, his apology with. I was deluded by Zeus. Now I offer you all your promised gifts. Achilles, again, very inhuman here. We know that he cares about gifts. We know that he doesn't necessarily care about Agamemnon's gifts since the last time Agamemnon offered him several, several, several gifts, he said, not even if he offers me as many gifts as are grains of sand will I come back. Well, now he's coming back and Agamemnon says, take your gifts. Achilles at first says, I don't want your gifts. And then Agamemnon insists, this is how it goes, take the gifts. And so even though Achilles cares not for gifts or for food, he, or excuse me, even though he cares not for gifts, he will take the gifts. And then he says, I don't care about gifts. I don't care about food. I just want to fight. And well, this is a bit of a problem. He's trying to sort of go outside of the normal way of doing things. Generally, we have an assembly. Then we eat. Then we go to fight. It's important to eat before you fight because you fight all day. What does eating give you that you need when you're fighting all day long? Energy. Energy. Strength. Achilles is not thinking clearly. He's not thinking about that. He doesn't think about the fact that everybody in the army needs to eat to some extent in order to be strong. And so he says, I don't even want to wait to eat. I just want to fight. Well, oh, no. Oh, oh. I don't have a slide for this. Well, I'm just going to have to tell you this very quickly then. He gets into a small debate. Who is it of all the Achaeans, you think, that would hear Achilles say, mm, I don't want to eat. I just immediately want to go to fight and would say, mm, not a very good idea. Not a very good idea. Yes? Odysseus. Odysseus. It is Odysseus. And in fact, we will often see Odysseus have to struggle with the things people put in their belly in the Odyssey. Apparently, a big part of uh, human learning throughout all time has been what we can eat, 
that's healthy and what we can't eat that's unhealthy. And in fact, you're probably still learning that to some extent now. How many of you like to like often think about, like, is this really healthy? Is this not healthy? I wish I knew. Yeah, it takes a long time. Not, and it's taken us a long, long time as creatures to figure out what's healthy and what's not healthy for us. And we're still not even close to knowing all the properties of the things we eat. Just something funny to think about. Odysseus says, we should eat. Achilles pushes the issue, tries to fight back against the system. No, we shouldn't eat. Odysseus responds a second time. Actually, we really do need to eat. All these men need energy. It's much smarter if we... You might say that Odysseus here embodies a rational perspective, whereas Achilles embodies an impulsive perspective. Which perspective, generally speaking, is going to be the more intelligent perspective? The rational one. The one where someone's thinking through and not acting based on emotion. Because Achilles, well, what emotion is filling his heart now that his friend has just been killed? More hatred. Does hatred make you smarter or stupider? Stupider because it focuses you in on hurting the person you hate to the exclusion of everything else in existence, including that which you need to do even to take punishment or even to punish someone you hate. Because something interesting about this is that Achilles needs to eat too. Even though he refuses to eat the food that the other people are eating, it is Athena who will come down and spread ambrosia into him. She somehow infuses him with ambrosia. There's something that she does to him so that he does not have to eat. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't need sustenance. It means that the gods are taking care of him in this way. And we can interpret what that means in our next seminar, perhaps even tomorrow. All right. We're going to talk about book 21 in our next lecture after Thanksgiving.